Uh, John will be reading verses 9 through 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and, the, and Tobia, excuse me, the Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So when I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We be blessed by the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. Well, here we find ourselves here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. We've been kind of journeying up to this point. You know, with the first uh, week of, this, of the series, we looked at Nehemiah the servant. What was the servant? Who was this man, Nehemiah, and what had... God done in his heart for the people of God. Uh, last week we looked at um, the call on his life uh, and how he was going to go before the king and be sent to the king to ask for provisions before the king to come to this moment that we're here this morning. Uh, this four-month long process of waiting and praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying had arrived. And so this morning, the title of this message this morning is Rise Up and Build. It's Nehemiah's strategy of how he's going to accomplish the task that God gave him some four months prior to this moment. We'll look at five things this morning when it's uh, up to us to rise up and build. We'll look at replenishing the resources. We'll look at accessing the need, recruiting the colleagues, inspiring confidence in handling opposition. You see, because God has called us, even here to Powell's Chapel, God's called us to something. God's called us to really build this city. We've been journeying through this, and we'll continue for the next uh, 13 weeks, this idea that God has called Powell's Chapel to rebuild the city walls here in Walter Hill. 
that God wants to uniquely use us, this church, to go into this community to offer people a way to worship the Lord. That's the whole premise of Nehemiah, that the people of God had no longer a place to worship God, that their city lay in ruin, that the temple of God lay in ruin because they were taken into exile and they had no place to worship a holy God. And so you remember in chapter 1, the first week, when Nehemiah heard about this, his heart was broken. And the challenge for us, even as we continue this series this morning, is our heart broken for the lost people around us? Do we have the heart of God in us? If we're believers this morning, do the things that break God's heart break our heart? Because if it does, then we'll plead just the way Nehemiah pled in chapter 1. He prayed and fasted and prayed and fasted that God would give him an opportunity, that God would use him in a unique way to rebuild the city walls, to give the people of God protection as they go to worship God. And so this morning, here's the strategy, and I believe it's true for us, that these five things we must put into our lives the same way Nehemiah put it into his life if we're going to rebuild the city walls, if we're going to reach the people for God. And so the first one is this. We must replenish our resources. Uh, we'll skip down to chapter, or chapter 2, verse 11 for this. And it says this, Nehemiah's writing. This is a memoir, if you will. Just book of Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's memoir of what happened when he went back home and rebuilt the city. And so I went to Jerusalem. You can circle that in your Bible. This is the first time that Nehemiah had ever been to Jerusalem. Even though he was a Jew, he was in exile, he had never been to Jerusalem. This is the very first time he'd ever laid eyes on the city that he even had a heart for, four months prior. Because again, he had a heart for God, and he knew God's heart was that God wanted people to worship him freely and wholly in the city, and yet it was broken. Then I came, and then I went to Jerusalem, and, there, and I was there for three days. So we'll camp out here for a few moments. I can only imagine that journey that Nehemiah had that day. The days prior to actually coming to the city, you remember all those prayers, all those dreams, all those things that were going in the heart of Nehemiah. I don't know if you've ever been on a trip to a place you've never been before. This happened to me a few years back. I, I'm a huge baseball fan, and one of the things that I've always wanted to go do was go to Boston and go to Fenway Park. I mean, there, there's no other park like Fenway Park. It's one of the original parks. It's over a hundred years old. It's like the granddaddy of them all. It's the prettiest park ever. And so I'd always had this desire to go to Fenway Park. I remember going and flying into the city of Boston and couldn't really see it. I remember hearing how to get there, and I remember getting off the subway and walking up the subway and walking out to, to see and hear the crowd begin to roar at Fenway Park. I got to go around the corner and came down uh, Yonkers Way. If you've ever been to Fenway, it's, the, the, it's where craziness happens at Fenway. And then something even more special for me, as I've shared before, my friend played he no longer plays for Boston. Pity on Boston. I no longer like them. Go Angels. <laughs> but I had field passes. 
And I got to go, go and walk on to the field at Fenway Park. This is something I had dreamed about my whole life as a baseball fan. And there I was in that moment at home plate looking out to left field and seeing the green monster. I remember stooping down on the ground and feeling the dirt and smelling the grass. And I thought, man, this is amazing. And I think about that moment for Nehemiah. Like for, for me, that's just a baseball fan. I didn't have a broken heart for the city of Boston. I didn't care about Boston. I just wanted to see a game. But here's a man of God that had this passion for the city of Jerusalem. And then there he was. I don't know where he came in into the city, but uh, that Jerusalem is in this kind of um, horse-shaped, uh, horseshoe-shaped bowl, if you will. There's mountains on three sides of it, and then there's the open side of it. So I don't know which angle he came into it. But it wasn't like he came into it and saw it from a distance. He had to come up over the horizon and then peer into the city. And I wonder what happened in Nehemiah that moment. I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have done what Nehemiah did. Like when I went into Boston and I went to the field, I couldn't get to the field fast enough. I was getting irritated with the people in front of me in the line to get the field passes. I was irritated to go through security. I was eager to get to the place I'd always wanted to do. But it says this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. It said that he started his day, he started his journey, he started his mission with one thing, with rest. That here's all these dreams, all these moments. I don't think I would have been like Nehemiah. I would not have gone and laid my head on a pillow. I'd have been too eager to do something. And I think so often when God calls us to something, we forget that he also calls us to rest. Rest is super important. And yet that's what he does. Here's what Raymond Brown says about rest. Physically exhausted people are not likely to achieve as much as they desire. Tirelessness robs us of our central perspective and destroys our peace. And because Nehemiah was a man of God, he was a prophet of God, he understood the rhythm of God. You see, the rhythm of God starts in the creation story. That God for six days straight worked and worked and worked and worked, and then he rested. And so here's all these moments for Nehemiah. All the moments of prayer, all the moments of fasting, all the moments of dreaming. And yet he rested for three days. Three days, he went to wherever he went and laid his head on a pillow and rested. And I think if we're going to be the people of God, then we must rest as the people of God. Here's what it means for us here at Powell's Chapel. Again, it's not my point to do this, but it seems like this series is making me do this. I could lose my job for this, but oh well. We've got to get to the place here at Powell's Chapel that this slogan no longer comes out of the lips of us as people. Well, we've always done it, so we'll continue to always do it. That's not resting. That's just to stay busy for the sake of staying busy because we've always done it. If Nehemiah had done that, if Nehemiah said, hey, I've got to go and do because I've been going and doing for four months, I don't think the thing that God had 
for Nehemiah could have been accomplished. He needed rest. So for us, Pastor Chapel, how do we rest? Rest is so important. We see Jesus himself rest. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Verse 7 through 13, and then we'll skip down to verse 32. Here's what Mark says about Jesus himself resting. If there was a man that ever walked the planet that need not to rest, it would have been Jesus himself, correct? That Jesus himself had a mission of God, and the mission of God was to seek and save the lost. Here's one man to seek and save thousands and thousands of people. If there's one man that ought never to rest, it would have been Jesus himself. But we see in Jesus' life over and over again this idea of resting. He says this in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called Jesus, called the twelve disciples, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them the authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing on their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. They went out and did what God was saying to us and what God had said to me and my, go to the people and tell them to repent. Tell them to come back to me. And so the mission of God is to go and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to wherever we go. That's what God is calling us. That's what God called Nehemiah to do. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so here's all the activity of God, day in and day out. And we skip down to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a, a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. See, if you continue to read that chapter, the very next story that comes out of this chapter is where Jesus does the, one of the most amazing miracles that the, the planet has ever seen. He fed over 5,000 people. And yet, God being God and Jesus being Jesus knew he needed the people of God to take a rest before he did a greater work. I think to myself here at Powell's Chapel, how often do we rest? How often do we rest? You see, I think a lot of things happen in our resting. First, we get rejuvenated. There's nothing like a great Sunday afternoon nap, amen? Tennyson doesn't believe so, but that's all right. But there's nothing greater than a Sunday afternoon nap. There's, there's nothing greater than a vacation, correct? Because when we get away from all the chaos, all the activity, I believe we can hear from God clearly. You remember back in the Old Testament, Elijah, Elijah had just done this amazing thing 
uh, with the prophets of Baal. That he said to the prophets of Baal, hey, whose God is true? Is your God true or is my God true? Well, let's put our gods to the test. So the prophets of Baal make the idol. They put the uh, calf on the idol. They, the, they're supposed to call fire down to consume it. Nothing happens. Elijah, it happens. The, the whole altar is burnt up like a crispy fritter and nothing remains of it. And what do we see Elijah do? He goes away and rests. So I think the first thing, our strategy here at Powell's Chapel is to rest. How do we do that practically? I believe practically what it looks like is you and I, we must look at the calendar of Powell's Chapel and say, why do we do the things that we do? Do we do them for the sake of activity? Do we do them for the sake that we've always done them? Do we do it because they're a 140-year-old tradition? Or we do it because God has called us to do something. I believe we here at Powell's Chapel must do less in order to do more. We must rest as a church. But it's going to start with you as individuals. It's going to start with me as an individual. Am I taking my daily rest with the Lord? Because the only way that I'll get what I need and you'll get what you need is through rest. And so are we resting? Nehemiah showed us that. That there was a lot to be done. You you remember Nehemiah was told, hey, all the city walls are busted to pieces. The gates are burned up. There was a lot to do. And Nehemiah saw it when he got to the crest of the hill. He saw all that had to be, be done. And yet, what he needed most, more than anything else, was to get away and to rest and do absolutely nothing so that he was prepared for the greater work that God was going to do in just three short days. You see, the beauty of this story is that this is a a mile and a half to two mile stretch of wall that covered the surrounding city of Jerusalem. Two miles of walls. You know how long it took them to rebuild it? Less than 100 days. Less than 80 days. But I believe it started because Nehemiah had the strength from his resting to do what only God could do through him. And so I believe, church, it starts with us. How will we rest? Are we resting? Are we just doing because we've always done? The next thing that we see is in verses 13 through 16. Again, for the first time, he had heard the need of the city. Right? He'd been dreaming about what had to happen in the city. But there's a lot difference of hearing about something. There's a lot difference of dreaming about something. And then there's something when you lay your eyes onto something. Nehemiah had to assess the need. Here's the deal what it says. It says this. It says this in verse 12. And I rose in the night. And I had a few men with me and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do. For Jerusalem. Uh, there was no animal with me but the one I, which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate and the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in the gates that had been, been destroyed by fire. And so here we see Nehemiah goes out. And it seems like the oddest time for Nehemiah to go out. 
Like, I think we think, uh, and Nehemiah went, and he had this amazing floodlight, and he went out and inspected the city. No, Nehemiah, the only way Nehemiah could inspect the city at night was either through the moon or through a little candle. He didn't have a floodlight. He didn't have uh, high beams on a car, high beams on on his uh, donkey-driven, his donkey-driven, he didn't have high beams on the donkey. And so here, Nehemiah goes by the secret of the night. How come? Because of what we read uh, in verses 9 and 10. There was already a plot against Nehemiah. If you remember back to Ezra, Ezra talked about there's this moment that the people of God wanted to rebuild the cities and that this king, King Artaxerxes, had already told the people, no way, you're never going to rebuild the city. So there's already this ploy against Nehemiah not to rebuild the city because rebuilding the city would take power away from the king. If you take power away from the king, you'll take power away from those two individuals at the beginning of the chapter. So Nehemiah went in the middle of the night and secretive. Here's the next thing. I think a lot of times when God lays something on our heart, our tendency is to go and broadcast it immediately. But what Nehemiah did, he did it in secret and kept it to himself. I think this is true, and it's true for me. So often when I hear from the Lord, I get so excited about the things of the Lord, I just want to spew it everywhere. And then I realize the next day it was just a crusty taco from Taco Bell that was speaking, more than the Lord was speaking. It's called heartburn. I think, so one of those things for us to do is if we hear from the Lord, we've got to keep it to ourselves to really know we heard from the Lord. The next thing that he does, he keeps it secretive, but yet he doesn't keep it secretive with everyone. Because there's, what does he say? He went out with a few men. I think this is so important for us. When God calls us to be on mission, he never calls us to do it alone. I think we as the church, and I don't just mean a palace chapel, but we as a whole have become insulated and isolated individuals to think that we can carry out the kingdom of God. That's impossible. We need other men if you're a man in here. Listen, men. If you are a man, you need other men outside of your wife to listen to your heart with the mission of God that's on your heart for your family. I promise you this, men. There's a lot of times for me in my house that I get so excited about the things of God, I want to go tell Jenny first, and it freaks her completely out because her heart has not been prepared the way my heart has been prepared. And so I need to get with men and share the passion that God has placed into my heart. I'll say this, I'll probably get in trouble for this one and get a lot of stares. Men, your best friend cannot be your wife. What do I mean by that? Your wife isn't your best friend. The way I interact with my best friend is way different than that I interact with my wife. The way I interact with my best friend is I'm going to make up a secret handshake, I'm going to do a chest bump, I'm going to do crazy things with. I don't want to do those things with my wife. I want my wife to be beyond a best friend. I want her to be my soulmate, not my best friend. Like I want her to know everything about me. You see, with my best friend, I don't have to tell him everything. 
Like there's things with my best friend that I'll never do with my wife, amen? Yeah, I said it, okay. I said it. Fellas, can I get another amen? Yeah, okay. So I want my wife to be my wife, not my best friend. So men, you need best friends. You need godly men around you that you can share the passions of God with so that you can be prepared to go take your heart to your wife. Because the way I talk to my wife has to be very, very intentional. And I need men to help me sand out the rough edges because I can be a little rough. Okay, y'all, I'm the only one? Okay. That's what it feels like to be alone in a building. And ladies, your, your husband cannot be your best friend. My hope is that, ladies, you will have a group of godly ladies around you so that when you get to talk about the passion that God has placed in you, that they will do the same and that then you have a group of men and a group of women that are praying and seeking God together and then therefore you can come and have intimate moments together that are far beyond best friend material. But God has called us, church, never to be alone. Never to be alone. If we're going to be the people of God and we're going to carry out the mission of God, we've got to assess the need, but in assessing the need, it will always show us that we cannot do it alone. I cannot raise my children alone. It's one of the greatest gifts here at Powell's Chapel, that we have a multi-generational church, that there are old, older men and older women, godly men and godly women, that have been through it way longer than I've been through it and can teach me the things of God, how to nurture a child's heart. You get a bunch of 32-year-olds in a room, a bunch of 35-year-olds in a room, we come up with some great ideas, but they fizzle fast. They sound great on paper, but they look ridiculous in the long run. And so we need older men and older women. That's the beauty here. I need Jenny to be with older godly women the way that Timothy the way Paul tells Timothy. That's true discipleship. We need older men to disciple younger men. We need that. The church in America is, is, is losing that rapidly, that the older godly men are unwilling to disciple the young men of the church. And again, it's going to come down to this one word, preference. Older godly men, please forsake your preferences to train a young guy like me. Please. I need it. I need it, and I need it desperately. I cannot do this mission here at this church alone. I can't do it a bunch of 35-year-old men. I need 60, 70-year-old men that have longevity in their walk with Christ and have wisdom beyond what my little pea brain has at this moment. I need your wisdom. I cannot do this mission to reach this community alone. Cannot happen. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll skip uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through uh, 31 is an extensive thing about how we are to be on mission with God and in relationship with each other, but I'll stick to two shorter passages. It says this in Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, that's you and me, one by one, grows into what the holy temple of the Lord. 
In him, you are also being built together in a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. That God has taken you and taken me and he's putting us together to create something greater than ourselves create. We need each other to be the people of God, to, to go on mission with God, to accomplish the mission of God. Here's what First Peter, Peter uh, 2, 5 says this. He says, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God through Jesus we need one another to accomplish the purposes of God Raymond Brown says this we're not isolated units but mutually dependent members who are joining together as living stones in a temple which is being built as fellow believers serve one another for the glory of Christ. You see, when we work as a body, we accomplish bringing ultimate glory to God. Church, yes, we, we have a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ but we ought never have a private relationship with Jesus Christ. We need one another. We see the need. We have assessed the need. We have over 2,000 homes within a seven-mile radius, and most of those people are outside a relationship with a holy God. And so it's going to take all of God's people to reach all of God's people. And we must work as a unit to do that. Here's another reason that we work as a team. That's what we see that happens in Nehemiah. Two things. When we go to work on mission with God, two things happen primarily. That the demand is overwhelming. You see, the demand for Nehemiah, there was no way Nehemiah was going to rebuild that wall all by himself. There's no way one man, one woman can reach this world for Christ. It's impossible. The demand is overwhelming. We need each other to accomplish the demand that's overwhelming to us. The second one is this. We see it as Nehemiah saw it when he assessed the problem. We leave this building and we go every day to a very hazardous condition. We do not live in a safe world. We have just watched the news this week. We don't live in a safe world. It's hazardous out there. We'll get to the end of the passage. When we go to be on mission with God, there are demands that will far outreach us, and there are conditions that are so hazardous that if we walk in them alone, we will be crucified for. We cannot do it alone. We must work as a body of believers. I saw this corny thing on the news this week. There was like two and a, two and a half miles uh, square miles of all these spider crabs that had gathered on the seafloor. Anyone saw that this week? I was like, that's nasty to begin with. But I began to watch this, and what it began to say is they all gather together when they go to get rid of their shell. Because they know if they get rid of their shell, when they molt their shell, that they're very, very exposed to their enemies, their predators. And so they, th they have this, this in them to gather together for protection 
so that when you have two and a half square miles of crabs, a, a fish or a stingray or a shark, it can't take all two and a half square miles of it. They gathered together for protection. I don't know if you've ever seen National Geographic's or um, the, the animal shows, Animal Planet. Like the, the, the ones that the lions go after, the wildebeest, have you ever seen it? Like a wildebeest is going to kill someone. I hope that's not offensive to anybody. But who do the lions go after? They go after the weak wildebeest that's in isolation. They do not go after the herd. They go after the weak one that's all by themselves. That is what Satan is doing to us. Church, we need to rally together for protection for the cause of Christ. And here's how we'll do that. The next thing that we see Nehemiah do in verse 17 is this. He recruits his colleagues. You see, he's already assessed the need. He already has told a few people of what's going on and then it says in verse 17 then I said to them the them is not talking about the few he had the them is talking about all the rest of the people that that came with him to rebuild the 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 Jews that were already there in Jerusalem that already knew the problem that already saw the problem the all those kings the people that the king sent with Nehemiah and so here's Nehemiah he rallies the troop and he begins to recruit those that will help him rebuild the walls Here's the first thing that Nehemiah does. Here's how we are to recruit people. Here's how we are to be on mission together. It's in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in? Circle the word we. Nehemiah identified with the people. He did not say, you see the trouble that you are in. He said, no, you see the trouble that we are in. He identified with the people. When we are to recruit people, we are to become one with people. It's never a hierarchy when it goes to accomplishing the mission of God. We are on task together. We have one leader and one leader only. It's Jesus Christ. So when we go and we go to see the lostness around us, when we go and we begin to gather people, we have to identify with the people. Here's what that means. We must be willing to be honest about who we are. We are all broken people. All of us in this room are just as broken as the person to your right or to your left. And Nehemiah got that. Nehemiah understood that. Nehemiah saw that back in chapter 1. And so here in this moment, he goes to the people. He says, I am one of you and you are me. There's no difference in us. As your pastor, there is no difference between me and you except for three letters with a period in, R-E-V. That's what I have that you don't have, but that doesn't matter at all when it comes to the standards of God. We are all broken people. I am just as broken as you are. I am just as messed up as you are. I am just as sinful as you are. How do I know that? I know that because I have the same cross of Jesus Christ that died for me that died for you. There's not a special cross for pastors and a special cross for lay people. No, Jesus Christ died for all. And so Nehemiah knew that as the leader of this great endeavor, he knew, hey, I'm just one of you. And the second thing he says is this, another way 
that he says it is this. When I spoke to them, I said, do you see the problem that we are in? In verse 17, how Jerusalem lays in ruins with its gates burns. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be in disgrace is what the ESV says, or the, the NIV says. You see, another way that we must recruit people is that we must see that we have a spiritual condition. Our spiritual condition is that we, apart from Christ, lay in ruins. We lay in ruins. So we want to identify that we're all the same. We want to identify that we are disgraced before God, but that you'll see it in a few moments, that there's a God that redeems it all. We must be on level playing field. The fourth thing that we see is in verse 18. It's inspiring confidence. And then I told them that the hand of my God had been upon me for good, and I also, that the words of the king had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good, for the good work. A few things that we see here. Nehemiah does not direct a command to the people, but he directs a challenge to the people. He challenges the people. He inspires the people, not with a command, but with an inspiration. I, I was thinking about this and watched, um, anyone ever seen Braveheart? It's what William Wallace does. I was going to show the clip, but I was like, nah, that's probably corny. So I'll just say it, it makes it even cornier. But there's that moment that William Wallace comes and that the people of Scotland begin to say, oh, that's not William Wallace. William Wallace was seven feet tall and William Wallace rides in front of him and he gives this all-inspiring uh, cast that let's go and defeat England. And they rallied around the cause that they knew was pretty uh, bleak, really, to be honest. To gain their independence from England was pretty bleak. England was a huge country at that time. Yet he inspired them. He said, if you want to go, go. But if you want your freedom, stay. In that moment, the people stayed and they fought and they fought and they fought and ended up finally, after years and years, gaining their freedom. And so the challenge from God is clear. It's not a demand from God. It is a command from God. But it's more of a challenge to God. Do we want to reach this city for lost people. I love what Nehemiah says. All the words that Nehemiah could say, you, you know, when he goes to the people, he doesn't point it to himself. It's what you sang this morning, Keith. In that moment, it wasn't like Nehemiah began to give his credentials, all the things that he did, all the places he'd been, who he'd been with, what he'd done, how he'd done this, his plan. He simply says in verse, verse 18, he speaks from a very persuasive testimony. And what is the testimony? The testimony is simple. I told them the hand of my God had been upon me for good. What is our testimony this morning? What is your testimony this morning? You see, if we want to inspire people to come to know this man named Jesus that died on the cross for us, I hope that we have a powerful testimony. I hate when people say this. I hate it, I hate it. Oh man, that's a, that's a powerful testimony. I wish my testimony was like that. I hate when people say that. 
I hate it. Because when you say that, or if I say that, what we do is we just diminish the work of the cross. That the, that the cross hasn't had as much power in your life as it does in this drug addict's life. No, the power of the cross is the power true and true. I hope that God, Tennyson grows up, and she does not have a testimony like mine. The only testimony that would be the same would I came to know Jesus. All the chaos before that, I pray to God Tennyson and Cedar never had that testimony. I pray that they say, man, I don't know how long I've known Jesus. I've just known him so long because my mom and dad loved me and I had a church that loved me. I pray that's their testimony. But there's just as much power in that testimony as there is in my testimony. Because it's not about me. It's not about Tennyson. It's about me pointing back to who God did and what God did. The mighty hand of God saved me the same way I pray that the mighty hand of God saves Tennyson and Cedar, and that they will say, oh, the mighty hand of God saved me. You have a very powerful testimony if you are a believer this morning. Two ways. Either he saved you from a lot of heartache, or he saved you from a lot of heartache. You have a powerful testimony, and that's all Nehemiah had in that moment. Let me just tell you what God did for me. Do you today do I today have a testimony about what God is doing in my life? Not do I have a past testimony, do I have a current testimony? If all your testimony is that, oh, I was 18 and God saved me, oh, great. I hope if you're 70, you have years and years and years of the good hand of God that you can go over and over and over and share the goodness of God with people. That is a powerful testimony. That is so powerful. You, you see, we have a lost world around us that wants to hear the testimony of God. They want to see if God is really good. They want to see if God is kind. They want to see if God is loving. They want to see all that. And we are God's vessels to do that. What's your testimony this morning? The last one in closing is this. What do we do? when opposition comes. Here's a promise. Probably the worst promise I could give. If we do the things of God, and we serve God, there will be opposition. That's why Jesus says, hey, hey, count it. Count the cost before you come to know me. Like, count the cost before you ever come to know me. Because if you think coming to Jesus is going to be uh, peaches and cream, you've got another thing coming for you. My life has been 10 times harder since coming to Christ. It has been way harder. Because now I have an enemy that rages war against my soul that is ticked off that I surrendered my will and my life over to the care of God, that God would, in His grace and His mercy, call me out from death to life. I have an enemy that rages against that. And he's going to use the same way that he did in Nehemiah with these three people. The first thing that's going to happen, you will be persecuted with words. You will be made fun of. You will be poked fun of. That's what it says, that they, they made fun of him. They used their words to uh, bring discouragement upon them. And then it got even deeper. They challenged and questioned their motives. They went after their heart. 
You see, the people of God have something that unbelievers don't have. It's a rejuvenated heart, and unbelievers see that, and unbelievers are going to attack the heart. They're going to try to attack the confidence that God has stilled in us. Because if we can begin to doubt, and we can begin to get away from God, then we're in trouble. And so how do we go about handling those oppositions? It's clear what Nehemiah did in verse 20. Here's how we handle opposition. The God of heaven will make us prosper. He is his, he is his servants will arise. We, his servants, will arise and, and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The way that we handle opposition we don't ever have to defend ourselves. We don't have to have to stand up for ourselves. We simply point back to the holiness of who God is. And we allow God to do the offending. But it's going to start with, do you and do I know the only way that we'll handle opposition is if we know God's word. You see, Nehemiah knew God's word inside and out, and Nehemiah presented the word of God in his defense. That's our only defense. That's how we handle opposition. We shield ourselves with the truth of God. We shield ourselves by speaking the truth to ourselves and speaking the truth to other, other people. But we have the confidence that God is who he says he is and God will do the things he says he'll do. And so this morning in closing, I pray for us that we as a church will rise up and build. That we'll see this strategy that we'll take the rest we need, we will never go alone, that, that we will recruit other people to come around us, that we will remember the great testimony that God has spoken to us, and then we'll also remember when those four things come into play, there will be persecution. But in our persecution, we have a God that defends us. We do not ever have to defend ourselves. The holiness of God will defend His children. And so this morning for us, will we rise up and reach the lost people that God has all around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, I'm so grateful for you this morning. I'm so grateful for all that you've done and all that you're doing. God, you are building up a church here at Palace Chapel. But God, even this morning, I pray for the other churches that stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we as a church with a capital C will rise up and we will go after the lost people in this community. And so God, even this morning, even now, as other pastors around this city are proclaiming the truth of God, I pray for your uh, restoration and your redeeming power and your strength from your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for us here at Palace Chapel. I pray for us as a community of believers, God. I pray that we will take the rest that we need. And anyone are resting, God, that you would speak clearly to our hearts. God, we see the problem. The problem is lost people all around us. The need is so clear from the Gospels. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I pray that you would raise up workers. Even here this morning. Raise up workers to reap the harvest. God, use us in a mighty way.
even now begin to prepare our hearts for a few weeks away for VBS, that you would raise up in us, God, courage and boldness and strength. And God, that you, even in this moment, wherever those children are, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would begin to attender their heart for the seed of the gospel that will be sowed. Prepare us, God. Lead us, direct us, guide us. And give you all the praise and the glory and honor. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.